Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to say that we launched our new and improved newsletter. Every other week, we send you a short email jam-packed with actionable advice from the lives of our founders alongside other exclusive content. Basically, it's your toolkit to become a better leader. If you'd like to get in on the ground floor, visit findingfounders.co slash subscribe or check the link in the show notes. All right, let's get into it. Watching TV and preparing to train, I remember that moment, that specific moment when a bomb sound and somebody said, oh, that's a bomb. I mean, they planted a bomb in one car. And as soon as the person passed by, they activated the bomb and the person and the bodyguard who was with him died. The bodyguard who who was with him, he was an amazing guy. He was a friend of mine. It was crazy. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, fails, you are going to be proud of it. Doesn't matter how badly you got beat. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go through that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. This is episode one of our series on ecotourism in San Jose del Cabo. In this series, we'll be discovering the unique locals, culture, and landscape that make up one of the world's top resort destinations. Today, we'll be interviewing local artist and gallery owner, Enrique Bescon. Enrique invited me to join him and his family for a workout before starting our interview. I was expecting a light exercise drill, but what I hadn't put together was that Enrique is not just an artist. He happens to also be an ex-Special Forces officer. Uh, usual workout. Well, it changes a little bit every day. I mean, we are going to train. All right, okay, okay. okay. Yeah, no, I'm ready. I'm ready for it. <laughs> All right, how do we start? Just finished the workout, and I'm changing right now. Um, <laughs> that's that workout freaking tough. Uh, you can see the Navy SEAL training in there and like the discipline, too. And I also like that the whole family does it together. Like the whole family is in on the working out. And it seems like the discipline of the working out is in contrast to the free flowing of, of, of painting. Um, and of like that, I guess, like unbridled creativity. Uh, we were just talking, Enrique and I. After some breakfast, how... we headed over to Enrique's art studio, where I got some hands-on experience learning his craft. We began creating a piece together using the unique multimedia form he uses for his artwork. So right now we're actually making the plaster mix. And so we just cut up a water gallon and we're going to try mixing the stuff. So you have the wood uh, that you're you're painting on, then you paint the background. And then I guess like the figure, because we're looking at this head on of, of someone. Who is this? I select different models. Sometimes they are curious. Enrique describes his artwork as journalism in Mexico. This leads him all around the country, uncovering the rich stories of its people and culture. Men like from the age of six till 70, and they all are are dancing of this event. Wow. What's the the event called? It's uh, Los Borrados de Santa Teresa. While we were working, I remember we were talking about life and death, and we were looking at one of these paintings in the corner 
where this woman was looking off into the distance and asked like, you know, what, what is the woman in the painting looking at? And he said, death. And we just launched into this incredibly deep and interesting conversation on his opinions of how life is really preparation for death. And he was an incredibly deep thinker and you could see it coming out in his paintings. So now that we know a little bit about who Enrique is today, let's begin our deep dive into the backstory that led him here. Well, we are in my studio. We came together this morning after having breakfast and knowing each other a little bit. And also a really ridiculously hard workout. The hardest workout I've had in ages. That was like, <laughs> that was a nuts workout. Oh my God. I was not ready. I thought it was going to be like some stretching or something, but no. No, no it wasn't. It was, well, this is military training. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know military, but yeah, we train every morning and he joined us this morning. It was amazing. Tell me a little bit about what we're seeing around us. We are in my studio. My studio is like in the center of Cabo San Lucas. Well, I have a very small gallery in the front with uh, some of my finished pieces. Yeah, so we're in the back part of the yeah, studio. and it is where everything happens. And just looking around myself, there is a almost life-size portrait of... Uh, what's his name? What's his name? This is from that's the Clint. Clint, Clint Eastwood. Uh, from the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Yeah, yeah, that's Clint, yeah. And then looking more around, there's ladders, there's all kinds of brushes and tools. There's like little bits of wire, obviously lots of frames and, and pictures. And the floors are like this nice concrete uh, with pretty high ceilings. Lots and lots of little paintbrushes. How did you stick those paintbrushes to the wall? Paintbrushes are like prints of what happened in my paintings. They remind me of where I'm coming from. That's the hard work. You need to put a lot of those in the trust to, to be a good painter from my point of view. You talked about the beginning of the painting, right? Like where the painting comes from with those brushes. And I want to talk about where you come from. And so you grew up in Spain. Could you tell me about some of your earliest memories from Spain? I am Basque. I am from the north of Spain. Basque is a way of being. And I like it. We are truthful. We tend to do what we say we are going to do. Uh, I like the way we are. I'm from Bilbao. And I was living there my first 30 years of my life. What is the earliest memory you have of living in Basque? I spent my summers in a very small village, which was the village my mother was born. Arredondo was the name. I spent there probably my best years in my infancy. It was amazing. I mean, I was wild there. What, what, what do you mean wild? What did you do? Well, I was, I was free. There is a saying that people tend to come back to their uh, happiest moment of their lives. And that's the tendency I have to. When, whenever I come back to Spain, which is once a year, I try to rent a house in that, in an area similar to this one. I left the house after having breakfast really quick, ran all over the village. We went to the river and we, we fished trouts uh, by hand. By hand. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we were really good. Maybe at 11, looking to the stars in the middle of nowhere. 
I have great memories of that AIDS. It, it was amazing. As you grew up a little bit more, what were you noticing about yourself in terms of what you wanted to do around your teenage years? Well, in those moments, you discover uh, life, you discover love. Life can't be only obligations. My father was a good student, but he couldn't study. So he wanted us to go to the university to do something with our lives. There was a lot of pressure in studying, doing what you have to do, no? Because you had opportunity that your parents never had. Yes, they had to work really hard to, to give us a better life. No, That's what they work for. I understood that the studying was a very important part. I have a problem with rules. I wanted to put my own rules. And I saw that the rules they were teaching weren't working for them. If they have all these obligations, they're working so hard just to survive. Why would you want to follow the same rules? Well, I am trying to understand now, no? It's a quick understanding. But that was probably the conflict. It was a big conflict for me in, that, in those moments. As Enrique struggled with this conflict, he began his journey as a free thinker. He wouldn't blindly accept the burdens he thought his parents were imposing. Not when his childhood in Naradondo had revealed how vibrant and liberating life could be. Running past rolling green hills, snatching slimy floundering fish, peering into a sea of radiating stars. A single day for Enrique captured so much life, so much discovery and awe. Placing confines on this freedom, as his parents seemed to be doing, felt criminal. And while a lot of us let go of this magic as we take on responsibility, Enrique refused to let all of life's possibilities go to waste. This defiance would lead him away from his studies and into the dreamy world of art, and a lot more trouble. I want to touch on painting, because that came early in your life, right? Yes, I, I had always liked to draw. Well, and I was I, I was drawing my entire life in diaries. I mean, in 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 these things you you, do you as draw? a kid, no? Yeah, I mean, I I would draw a, a lot of different things, but uh, I have been always interested in in people, always. I have a tendency to creativity in a lot of different ways. We need to leave a print. So so I have been always looking for that print. Like your print on the world. Yeah. At 20, what are you looking for towards the future? What is your relationship like with your family? In that moment, I was the result of a, of a conflict, big conflict. My life was very fun, but it was a mess because I had a lot of problems with my, with my father. He wanted me to study. I mean, I was getting some money and having fun. It was impossible to avoid the conflict. I remember one specific conversation in which I told him, well, I had a friend who was going to Ibiza because they offered us a job. And I remember one night I arrived late at home and they were lying on the bed, but uh, with the light on and we arrived and, 
And I said, well, I'm sorry, but, the, uh, but I need to know what I am and what I want to do with my life. And I don't want to study. I don't want this life. I don't want to be here anymore. And I don't want to cause any more problems. So I'm, I'm going. I'm leaving. And my father started to cry and my mother. And uh, it was a very emotional moment. That moment was an emotional moment. What do you think they thought was happening? I don't know. My parents were afraid probably of uh, losing me forever. Or that, that was probably his, uh, their fear. I am going to leave to another place which is far from here and I'm going to begin my own life to do a completely different thing with my life or to give me time to know what I want to do with my life. But that never happened because my father um, fell sick, like really bad, with a cancer. By choosing to move to Ibiza, Enrique was rebelling against more than just his parents. He was rebelling against Spanish culture as a whole. There, family is central to daily life. In contrast, in most Western countries, it's tradition to live with your parents well into your late 20s and even 30s. Your siblings, cousins, and elders are considered your most essential support network. Anxious to become his own person, Enrique left all of that behind. Ibiza seemed like the ideal place to do it. Since the 1930s, it's been a place for creatives like himself to escape authority. Its dreamy landscape drew in artists fleeing fascist rule, hippies seeking peace and love, and even some of the first rock and rollers. Whatever excitement he was looking for surely could be found on that island. But when his father's health took a devastating turn, he quickly realized that all he wanted in life was never that far away. Do you remember when you first heard that there was cancer? He has a, a certain way to do things, and I respected that, the honesty. That was the way he decided to tell us, well, I'm, I'm sick, I, I'm going to fight a big fight. No, I'm going to, to have the fight. It dissolved every conflict between us because uh, he was a very important figure for me. I said, well, I'm going to stay. I'm not going to move to anywhere. I want to be with you. you know, let's try to fight this. No? It was uh, in and out of the hospitals of the, all the time. And that was for two years. I mean, it was uh, another month and a half at the end. Uh, he was like uh, vomiting blood. It was, I mean, sickness is... That's something you don't want to talk about. I mean, it's something... I don't know what to say, man. That's, that's bad. I had an uncle that died of cancer now six months ago. Something um, I learned from that experience is when you know death is coming, you can give something to the people that care about you. And so I'm wondering with your father, how did he start talking to you? What I learned about death is life is now. And life is perfect. Always is perfect. The gift is not death. The gift is life. Is, is being conscious of life. Is being conscious of the moment. And enjoy it. Embrace it. And at the end, he was quiet. I mean, he knew. 
Speaking about the loved ones and how they die, it's, it's crazy how, how simple life is and how complicated we do it. Yeah, it doesn't have to be. From my point of view, it's about the people. It's about the people who really care. I mean, that's the bond we create. That's the real thing. It's love. Love was what he sought as a teenager, not parties in Ibiza. Before Enrique realized this, he thought he'd find fulfillment by packing his life with exciting experiences. But it turned out fulfillment wasn't something he could find outside of himself. Instead, it was a mindset shift he needed to make. As Enrique watched his father battle cancer, his eyes were open to the love and joy his relationships provided him with. Nights out dancing could come to an end and fun with strangers would eventually move on, but unconditional love like his father's would see him through his failures and successes. Moving forward, Enrique wouldn't stop seeking adventure, but he'd prioritize his family above all. After your father passes, how are you thinking about your life? When something like that happened, I think you face life in a different way. And I said, well, my father wants me to study. My father wants me to have a security. And, and I will try to do that because I, I want to honor him in one way. And then I decided to go for the university. I tried law, but it was impossible. And I decided to stop, uh, to, to finish with law and keep on working. And I was working uh, as a, well, in a kind of a police or military or... How did you get into police and military? Basque people has been always fighting for their independency. So they had the right to their own security. So they created a really well done police corps. The name was Erchancha. The bus police corp has been on for a while. If you wanted a good job and really well paid, they took care of the people. They, they created a really good, good project. They had a good project. But in the same moment, there was this terrorist group, ETA, which was like super active. They killed at least one person every week. Why were they killing people? because they were asking uh, for the independency. Wait, they wanted Basque's independence? Yes. And so they were killing... Like politicians and, wow. and police officers from the Spanish government. It was a difficult moment in the Basque country. We, of course, weren't agree with uh, this terrorist uh, thing. They had a way of thinking. Maybe you can, you can understand them from certain po point of view. For example, we had a flag in the north of Spain, the Basque flag, uh, and they didn't allow, allow us to put the flag anywhere uh, to the Basque people, or they didn't allow people to speak Basque, their own language. They were people in the mountains, they couldn't even speak Spanish because the only language they have always been speaking was Basque. So there is a certain point you can understand then, but the, not, the, the, not the killings. Tell me what it was like when you actually joined. 
Were you still in school or were you finished up school at this point? No, I was first. I went to the academy for a year. And then after finishing the academy, I was sent to Bilbao. And I was there for a year and I applied to be a bodyguard. You were applying to be a bodyguard for politicians. Yes. At a time when politicians are being murdered every day. Yes. Why? Isn't that like putting yourself in like the most danger possible? Well, but you know, I, I think, and this is important, when you are 25, you are you you want that i mean you uh, you want that uh, adrenaline in, in your body and i wanted that and i wanted to be part of the elite corps and i wanted to be like uh, i wanted to be there i guess if you're going to put yourself in immediate danger that's as good enough a reason as any he was a kid who wanted to be part of an elite corps and he'd do whatever it took to get there and that meant serving in the Erenchancha a police force designed to help protect the Basque people from Spanish oppression. Quick bit of historical context for all this. In 1515, the kingdom that ruled over Basque was annexed by what we now know as Spain. While they self-governed for a time, in 1839, the Spanish took the reins, prompting a new push for independence. By the mid-20th century, dictator Francisco Franco's oppressive rule pushed the Basque nationalists further to the edge. Out of this came the ETA, or Oscarita Ascatasunsa, meaning Basque Homeland and Liberty. So while Enrique may not have approved of the ETA's violence, he understood where their anger came from. He was, after all, Basque too. And in his search for purpose, fighting for his people felt like a worthy cause. But being a bodyguard amidst political violence wasn't without its challenges. I was the bodyguard of the president of the Basque country. How did that feel? I mean, our timetable was unbelievable. We were trained by Israeli people, so they paid a lot of money to have the best trainers there. I was with them, and there two things about what, they, what that moment gave to me. One of them, we worked one week, one entire week, and then we had four weeks free. So that gave me the opportunity to study. I had two lives. And the other thing I wanted to tell you was, well, I remember once, which I will never forget. We were in the in Ajuria Enea. Uh, Ajuria Enea means uh, the, El Palacio de Ajuria. El Palacio de Ajuria is where the president of the Basque country lived during the, the presidency. So we were in Ajuria Enea. I was working. So we were all sitting there watching TV and preparing to train. I remember that moment, that specific moment, when a bomb and somebody said, oh, that's a bomb. I mean, we were all together and we said, well, that, that's a bomb. What happened? And after that, we ran out of, of Ajurianea and close by, there was a, a politician who teached in the university. I mean, they planted a bomb in one car. And, uh, and as soon as the person passed by, uh, they activated the bomb. It was crazy. I mean, it's a bomb. So he was still alive. Yeah, the stomach is, uh, was out. And 
they killed the politician, but the the guy Patata who was just beside him was uh, hit in two. He died, but he was alive. The bodyguard who who was with him, we went to the to the course to be a bodyguard. He was a an amazing guy. I I he was a friend of mine. It was exciting, the training, the life, I don't know, but it was horrible. I had two lives. In that moment, I already had two lives. You're still going to university. Yeah, I was like uh, one week working like that and without saying to any of my friends, to any of my people what I was doing because it was like... uh, Sometimes they know because sometimes they, your, your they picture is capture being you. Yeah, they capture you like in the TV or in certain events. So they know. But you never speak about that. And I went to the university, to the arts university, but I wasn't I wasn't there. I had to to do a lot of different courses all the time. So with the courses uh, I couldn't attend to the university, so I stopped that uh, intention for a while. I couldn't study and and doing this in the same moment. But then I applied for the SWAT team. Among the people who were chosen f- to be bodyguards, they selected a 30 people uh, group. So this is special forces, basically. Yeah. How did SWAT? differ from the bodyguard lifestyle was it did it feel different it was fun (laughs) let me tell you man it was fun i'm sorry to say this it was fun i was 25 probably when i joined and and we were like uh, in the helicopter and driving like crazy we had access to a lot of different weapons but it was fun because i was 25 so when i went into the SWAT team, I had a lot of free time. I mean, we, we live with a, with a busca, with a phone the entire day. If they call us, we had to be there like in a minute. You know, it was like a reaction team. And then had a lot of, I mean, a lot of free time. That's the moment I decided to study. So you're doing all sorts of things for SWAT. When are you starting to have thoughts that you might want to change? Well, I got in the in that group and I decided to go for the elite group because there was passion. I mean, we wanted to be there and we really believed in what we were doing. But then... Because of the politics, there was a certain moment that feeling disappeared. People, my friends, started to speak about more about the conditions of the work, more about the money. They started to think more like uh, any other work worker, like uh, speaking about timetables and I have the right to do this and I have the right to do that. And I wanted to be part of the perfectionist and of the proudness of being there. And that disappeared. In the back of my head, I always had the certainty I wanted to be something more. I wanted to learn to develop my intellectual level. That's what I wanted for my for my old times. 
I remember one conversation with my mother. I told her, Mom, do you think I will, I will leave the, the Ertanta, the, where I was working, and I will do it to travel, to be free? And she answered me with fear. <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, after that conversation with my mother, the decision was made. I already knew in that moment I, I was going to leave everything behind. So one morning I arrived to the office without anyone knowing anything. And I speak, spoke to my chief and I said, well, I am leaving. I'm leaving at least for three years because I know it's going to be hard, but I want to give me the opportunity to have a completely different life. So I sold everything and I decided to travel. Okay, yeah, selling everything and leaving a comfortable life sounds a bit crazy, but when reflecting back on Enrique's life, it makes sense. He's constantly defying rules and stepping beyond his comfort zone in search of his identity. In his early 20s, he had craved the rush and adrenaline that came from being on the SWAT team. But deep down, he knew that life wasn't going to last forever. So he forged a new path for himself, seeking out another purpose that called to him. He wanted to test his own boundaries and challenge his mind. Scientifically speaking, up until this point, Enrique had been building something called fluid intelligence, which includes stuff like problem solving and spatial awareness. This type of intelligence develops the most leading up to our 20s. But now it was time to put all that knowledge to the test and enhance his crystallized intelligence or the ability to draw from experience and knowledge. This is the type that increases well beyond our 20s. Enrique already held a trove of experiences dating back to his earliest years. Now it was time to apply those experiences in a different way. And he'd do so through creativity. Could you tell me once again where we are and also where we just came from? Uh, we are in French Riviera. We decided to come to a coffee shop. Well, I love the coffee here. Yeah, the owner is a French guy and the pastry is really good. So I love sweets. And we are in the historic center of uh, San Jose del Cabo, which is uh, where my gallery is, actually. So last we left off, when we were in your studio, all the way in Cabo San Lucas, we were talking about you leaving. Actually, let's go back a little bit and um, talk about how you decided to start studying art while you were also working at the SWAT. So was there a moment where you're like, this is the thing that I want to do? Like, can you describe the action that you took to actually take classes there? And then also maybe some of the conversations that you had before. Like, did you did you tell anyone that you wanted? No. You didn't tell anyone. Why? No, not really. I mean, well, most of the people didn't know exactly what I was doing for working because I couldn't tell that. But did you tell maybe some of the people that you were working with that you wanted to do art? They knew. I mean, they knew even. I'm just imagining this right now, right? I'm imagining a bunch of SWAT guys, like big, like giant dudes. And you're like, hey, guys, um, I'm an artist. <laughs> no, well, I, I remember once. Uh, do, do you, usually we think uh, about a SWAT uh, team like uh, the one I was in. And, and you think, well, these guys are all muscles, no brain. 
Well, uh, you would be surprised. I mean, the level, intellectually speaking, of the people I was with in, in that moment was unbelievable. And the spirituality of some of them was unbelievable, too. I wouldn't actually think that they would be dumb, right? I would think that at that level, you have to have some intelligence to be in the top 30 of 8,000, right? But the thing that is actually strikes me as odd or out of place is uh, the spiritual, the art, right? Because like, I mean, you said they, had, they were spiritual too. So how were you shown that? Or how did you know that? Once I remember I had to do like a portrait uh, and nude for the, for the university because I was doing classes. Well, all of us were in shape. I mean, the, the bodies of the, of the people who is working there. Yeah, yeah, they're going to be ripped. Yes, exactly. So I asked one of my fellow friends, well, man, pose for me. I need you to pose for me because, <laughs> because I need to finish this portrait and I don't have an access to another body. So he posed for me and it was this, uh, this funny situation because suddenly other people... Was it awkward? No, not really. I mean, we, I, I don't know. Nudity is, is something normal. I mean, it's, it's not uh, like uh, we, we have never seen a, a nude body. So it's something normal. Posing can be a crazy thing. He was a crazy guy and he said, yes, I'm going to do that. But I won the portrait. So I did the portrait of him and then I went to the university and I gave him the, the nude, no, the, the portrait. It was fun. It was really fun. We were quite close. So it was fun. But I remember that. Were they all like, I guess, saying this is a good thing that you should try to explore? I mean, all of us uh, were exploring different different things. Uh, I remember one, another, another guy, he was studying... I mean, the, the reading of the of the hands and then... Oh, palm arts. reading. Yeah, palm reading. Oh, and okay. and I, he, he was a, an expert in, in martial arts too. And I, I mean, they were all kinds of crazy people up there. I mean, crazy people. Okay, yeah. so it's like, I would, have, I would have totally thought that your desire to be an artist would have been rejected, but it was actually embraced by these 30 muscly guys that were perfect for your nude portraits. <laughs> they didn't really care about, I mean, we had, we all had two different lives. Well, you had to, because there was so much time off. Like, what are you going to do? So as your, your interest in art and your skill is developing throughout art school, what are you thinking towards the, I guess, the, the, the end of the three-year period? Also, like, were people saying you're good? Yes. Do you remember, like, one of the first times that someone said, oh, you, you actually have talent? Because it's one thing to have the discipline to go to art school. But there's another, It's an, I think it's another thing to say, hey, you actually have something here that is unique and, and there's talent behind it. We all are creative people. You need to focus in what is your discourse. Whatever it is, it's going to work if you put enough energy and enough focus in what you want to achieve. And the difficult thing in the art school is exactly that. Most of the people are so lost. They focus so much in learning a lot of different things, and but there is not a certain direction you should, uh, you should go for to be successful. What, what is today being a successful artist? It is, the concept is so open that you can't really answer that question. So it's believing in yourself. That's it. No more. And then you develop uh, certain skills to create a language. That's all. And that's what I did. 
uh, you see, you, you draw a lot and you paint a lot and everyone is making comments all the time. Then the teachers are making comments all the time. And then there is the grades. I mean, you have grades. So they, and I ask for a Seneca scholarship. Yeah. So I ask for that and they, they give the Seneca to a few people and I was one of the chosen ones. I asked for the University of Barcelona, which is the, one of the most difficult to get in. I got it. I mean, they gave me the Seneca scholarship to go to Barcelona to study really? my fourth year. Yeah. What did that feel like? And like, what was Barcelona like? I went to Barcelona and after three months studying in the University of Barcelona, I decided to put the money back. I mean, to give, to, to give the money back uh, of the scholarship and to leave my studies. I decided to travel all over the world for three years because that's exactly what I wanted to do. But decisions like that are usually prompted by an event that makes you realize, I need a change. To be a teacher in the university, maybe you need to finish your studies, but not to be an artist. I think you need, not necessarily, but it is uh, your, one of the subjects you need to pass, probably, if you want to be an artist, is not finishing the, the university. And I can, I can see that, but like to stop school in the, your last year, to give back money that you've had, there must have been something that happened. How did you start to think that you wanted to travel? I remember one specific day I was drawing and the, the teacher in the university was, was looking how I draw and I draw in the, in the floor. I was very, I, I am still, uh, like, how to say, expressionist. And my way to approach to the figure was really attacking the, the paper and attacking the figure. It was quite intense. And the teacher arrives to me and he says, well, that's amazing. He really liked what he saw. And then he said, but you need to draw me the skeleton of a horse in the classical way without any input probably that was the moment I mean I knew how to draw I knew what I ha what I needed to follow my line I didn't need that in that moment I needed to follow my dream so I, I went to the to the administration office and I said well I don't need the Seneca were they surprised yes how are you going to do that? You you are receiving the money already. And I said, well, I need you to cancel it. I don't want to have the money because I don't deserve it. There, there is going to be another person who deserves much more than me. And I don't want to, I, I'm not going to take advantage of that. Enrique knew what he wanted and no amount of money was going to stray him from his goal. At university, he realized that studying art wasn't all that different from everything he'd been running from. It was still all about following rules and drawing what the teacher wanted him to draw. And at this point, I think it's pretty clear Enrique doesn't like rules. It's not in his nature to fit inside the mold created for him by others. He wanted to experience life, to see new places, other cultures, things that would fuel his creativity in a way school couldn't. As he said, there is no one direction for success. So after giving up the scholarship money and leaving university, Enrique embarked on a journey that would help him forge his identity as an artist. You said that you wanted this trip to be like sharpening the pencil. I imagine that you're just packing a backpack full of easels and like 
paintbrushes and pencils and then you just go off to wherever in the world? What was the plan? Where did you want to go? What did you want to accomplish? What I wanted was, uh, well, to sharp that pencil, I needed to look for experiences with human beings to open my life, not hiding anything, trying to find myself to recover the social part of myself, not lying to anyone. Because for so long, you've been hiding a part of your identity. And this was your way to say, this is who I am totally. Right now, I'm an artist. That's what I did. I traveled three years in a row, like uh, for three years, all over, almost all over the world. What, what, where did you go? I was traveling all around the U.S. for a while and uh, the central part of uh, America, South America, Brazil. Uh, I was I was traveling a little bit India, Cambodia. And, well, I went to Australia. I went to uh, different places all over. I mean, something, some places in Europe. And I was traveling without any agenda. I arrived to a place and I stayed as long as I wanted. I had money because I sold everything I had in Spain. When you were traveling, what were you focusing on? What were you hoping to to encounter? I was into surf. So I traveled a lot uh, surfing and I was into people. Uh, I mean, I have always loved women and that's the truth. I mean, I have always loved women and I can't avoid that. It's my my animal side and, and I have always liked people. And I knew in that moment, I knew that I really wanted to draw people, to draw faces. I think the face is the most amazing map of the human being itself. I mean, I think it's amazing what you can read in other people, what you can read in not only beauty. Beauty has a discourse, but ugliness is much more interesting uh, probably than beauty because beauty has been so explored of different ways. So I draw, I draw a lot. I wanted to look for the sweet area of myself. After being part of a SWAT team for so long, there was little room for him to explore that playfulness amidst the violence. But now, as an artist, he's able to finally bring his two identities together on a canvas, in the outlines of a human face. Looking at Enrique's paintings, you can see why he finds imperfection more interesting than perfection. He brings out all the lines, cracks and wrinkles and shadows to the forefront of his artwork, revealing what it means to be human. What I learned from Enrique by looking at his work and talking to him is that art isn't just a set of rules to follow. It's an expression of the artist's life and the way they view the world around them. Whether it was the horrors he saw during his time as a bodyguard or the struggle of finding his identity, Enrique's experiences could be used to create something meaningful, full of vibrancy and life. Now, it was finally time for him to share his art with the world. You've traveled all over the world and I'm sure had amazing experiences. When do you think it's time to set up a place of your own? Stop being a traveler and lay your claim somewhere. I was living in Costa Rica and I decided to, I made friends with a few guys from Argentina. In a certain moment, one of them, who was a businessman, told me, well, let's open a business. Let's open a gallery. Uh, and I said, that's okay. Let's do it. Wait, what? 
So you meet this random guy. Yeah, well, this after a while. Man. I mean, I am I'm making the, the story short, but it was short. I mean, it was, I, I have always been like, a, I mean, I take decisions that way sometimes. I, I see the path. Yeah. Were you excited? Well, it was amazing. I mean, it was, okay, this is my next step. This is what I want to do. I want to make a life of the experiences I have had. So, yes, let's open a gallery. Why not? And he asked me, because I have been traveling all over, he asked me, well, do you think we should open a business? And I said, well, Cabo San Lucas. Wait, why? Why was that the first? I mean, the location of Cabo San Lucas is unique. If you see the map, you see paradise. And that's the reality. It's like an island down there. I mean, the best customer of the world, which is American. I mean... It's the perfect place to open a business. There is a certain chaos in the Central American countries, and I like that. I don't like this order, you know, everything in order. We, we Yes, I like the chaos. So, and I like uh, the Latino feeling, the Latino spirit. So this was the place, and I decided to come here, and that's what we did. In three months, I took my money, and I said, well, let's go. And we opened the business. And so you're open this business in paradise, which was a gallery. And then you open a gallery and then, right, just done. It was easy. And now you're super successful. Now I have a business, which I don't know anything about running a business. <laughs> yeah. Argentina guy was the business guy. You're the artist. And now you have this business in yeah. San Lucas. But now it was fun. It was perfect. Yeah. But the business went uh, down like in, I lost a lot of money. When did you start realizing things weren't working out? Well, uh, we had a, a big problem with uh, Hacienda, which is uh, with taxes. The first thing we did is uh, we, we paid like a tax agent. So we thought everything was under control. I, I don't try to diminish my responsibility. I don't know. I was having fun and I probably paid the consequences. Uh, I don't think the rest of the people is responsible for what happens to you. I, um, I assume the responsibility. You can't put your things in hands on, of other people. So, and I did that. Can you tell me how you felt when things started falling apart? Well, there was a lot of stress. We both partners uh, ended fighting each other in one way. So when things don't go well, <laughs> you, you see the real people. You know? And the real people is, uh, it's very easy to be a cool guy when everything is going well. But then suddenly something happens and you see the other side. I decided to put all my money in the business. Which was how much at that point? Well, probably a hundred thousand. Oh my God. He was under stress. We all uh, saw the, the worst of us. We ended bad, of course. It wasn't easy to end well. And I was broke and that's it. And I want to make it short, to be honest, because... Uh, I decided not to put any energy or giving energy to that situation anymore. I tend to use what I have learned for the next step. And that's what I did. What was the next step? You need to trust yourself and you are an artist and do it. 
do it. This is the moment. You have been you have been studying for this moment and behind every successful artist, I'm sure there is a certain moment you need to be focused. This is not a moment to think about money. This is a moment to think about creating something and go for it. That was the same focus I used when when I wanted to be in the elite of what I did before. You know, it was like, you are the one. That's it. Go for it. You have the capability, so go for it. And you have always known that. And now you have the opportunity to be as low as a human being can be, to grow up. I mean, this is the moment, man. When the gallery went away, where were you living? Uh, well, I went to a city apartment <laughs> and it was a, a, a construction without finishing, but it had a door. <laughs> I mean, um, I love how that's like that. Hey, don't worry, it had a door. There no, was it a, had door a door there. <laughs> so I could have my tools, a few tools safe. No air condition, of course. I, I think I got the money to buy like a, like one of these small fans. I mean, so you it was had a crazy. door and a fan yes, in the shack. Basically. Wow. That's what I had. Well, I was working, I don't know how many hours. I mean, I was, I was working, I was sculpting. I did a sculpture in the university, and that's what I did. I sculpted, and I was and I was intense, and I was focused. I mean, my perfectionist was working there. I I mean, nothing was enough, and and no matter how many hours I was in front of that or the other sculpture, I wasn't never happy enough. And so you're 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 going to sleep every night saying. I'm going to be a painter. I'm going to be a successful painter. Yeah. I'm going to be a successful artist. I'm yes. going to be a successful sculptor. Whatever that means. Whatever that means. Yes. His determination gave him a North Star to follow as he lay awake night after night in his stifling little room. Enrique's right. Partnerships are a lot like relationships. Like many people starting their first serious relationship, he was too swept up in the excitement of finding someone to then worry about the deeper compatibility issues. And just like most first-time romances, the partnership ended in heartbreak. Despite the natural temptation to obsess over what went wrong, he accepted that this was all part of the chaos of life. Talking to Enrique taught me that one of the key similarities between artists and entrepreneurs is the necessity of self-belief. You need to trust yourself because if you're just looking at the cold, hard facts of your situation, no steady income, mountains of debt, and no real prospects, you might give up. Eventually, Enrique's faith in himself paid off and his luck began to change. Well, I was probably one year in that situation specifically. And let me give the credit to someone because I think she really deserved it. When I was successful and I had money, I met this woman who is uh, an architect and well-known, beautiful woman in the city. She came from a pretty good family, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, Well-known and, family within Cabo. She, she was probably like in a contradiction because a lot of parts of her were saying, well, what, what are you doing there? I mean, you are 
she's a wealthy girl, you know, horse riding, uh, travel all over the world. And now I am with an, with an, with, with a, a guy who artist. says he's an artist <laughs> because, because the only thing I see is a sweating guy, <laughs> you know, uh, working uh, the entire day in that city hall. The situation was that uh, she, she stayed there for a long time. And this is Alejandra. Yeah, she is Alejandra. She really believed in me. After a while, uh, I, I could like start to pay um, a rent, uh, a better place, and I began to, to paint. I started with a series using all the traveling. You know, I started with my analysis and with a series related to vendors in the beach. And I painted like uh, 12 of those guys life-size. Like these street vendors. Oh, street vendors. Yeah, beach vendors. So I try to capture like the human being behind behind those guys. I mean, they really work as much as, as I was working. Uh, so I painted a series of these beach vendors, life-size, and that's where, when I started to paint uh, life-size, working with all the galleries. Someone saw one of my pieces and said, well, this is, I mean, this is money. I mean, he's doing well. I'm well from there. Uh, I started selling some pieces through the gallerist, and she wanted more and more and more. So I, I was, uh, well, a lot of people was looking for that collection uh, for my pieces. Once a while, she called me and say, well, I have sold one of, the, one of your pieces and I sold the pieces. So we are speaking about, I don't know, probably $5,000 a piece for me. I mean, uh, they charge you 50%. So she was selling my pieces for maybe around ten thousand dollars. Wait, five thousand dollars? You're that? That's a lot of money for yeah, uh, for somebody who was money. broke. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. I know. How did that feel to start selling consistently? Did you think of yourself as more of a legitimate painter because people were buying things of yours, or did you always just feel? I am a painter. I don't still know if I am a painter, honestly. I don't know what I am. I am an art, I don't know if I am an artist. You know, there is so much behind those concepts right now that I don't know how to call myself. I don't know. I, I like to write. I like to paint. I, I like to express myself. You know what I feel today when I get in my gallery? My gallery is me. That's what I feel. And I have so many things to do still to complete what I am. And, to, and I will create a space which is going to be a reflection of my life, a reflection of uh, the moments who have marked my life. What I'm getting here is that Enrique isn't limited to a title. He's not just a painter or even just an artist. He's someone who yearns to express himself in ways that others can relate to, to depict moments in time and ultimately to share them with others. But something that stood out to me more than anything else was the street vendors. It wasn't an image of grandiosity or extravagance that Enrique was drawn to. 
He was drawn to, well, normal people with their beads and blankets and trinkets sprawled across a pavement. People who were working tirelessly and people whose humanity almost gets lost within the crowds of people rushing past. By unwrapping the identity of other people, Enrique inched closer to fully understanding his own. Now, it was time to test boundaries once again. So tell me about opening the gallery. Because you were, you were funneling all these paintings to your friend. Yes. In her gallery. When did you decide to create your own? People is waiting for me to finish my pieces, to buy them. So the next step is opening my own gallery. I don't need a, a person to believe in me. I, I need to believe in myself. And there is all that romantic thoughts about being poor and being an artist. Yeah, the struggling artist. <laughs> you know, like, well, the artist uh, has to be in the street and live like, you know, well, not anymore, my friend. Forget about that. I think you, we have the right to have money. We need the courage to fight for that right. You need to focus part of your life to the necessary knowledge to manage your business. An important part of being successful is having money. And that's it. It was for me, at least. During the Romantic era, the starving artist trope entered the public consciousness. Suddenly, being an artist was about living a hedonistic bohemian lifestyle, and the cornerstone of that lifestyle was poverty. The 19th century trope perpetuated the narrative that achieving any financial success makes you a sellout. After all, true artists made art for art's sake and weren't concerned with crass things like money and mortgages. Over the centuries, this narrative became so culturally ingrained that economic hardships became a mark of legitimacy. To this day, society uses this logic to bully artists into undervaluing their work. But Enrique wasn't concerned with fitting society's idea of what he should be. If his old friend could be a SWAT member and a palm reader, then he could be an artist and a businessman. His newfound financial security gave him the freedom to make art and plan for the future. So you have the gallery now, you have the studio, you have a beautiful beautiful place with a terrace and a pool where do you feel like you are now and what are you looking forward to i want freedom i want freedom i want the same thing i wanted to when i was a kid i want the same thing i wanted when i was in the police i want the same thing i have always wanted i want freedom and freedom is having always a choice i mean that's freedom for me and money is part of it beauty is part of it too Family is part of it. And then, honestly, my mind is a mess sometimes. <laughs> I can't control everything and I still can be a mess. So, so I'm trying to control everything, one life, which is uh, basically we all try to do. I mean, it's a, but I am in a certain point in which I can choose. I mean, I can choose to spend a couple of months uh, in Spain. I want to have always a choice and to unlove love and health i train every day you have that discipline you have that balance you know you have a lovely family that's what i'm trying to find it seems like you do have it. it seems like you're doing exactly what you want when you want and on your terms 
So if you were to give advice to yourself when you were younger, when you were maybe my age, when you were 24 or in your 20s, what advice would you give yourself? Look for, for your inner strength. I mean, look for and trust yourself, man. This has been said so many times. You know, be open and read the line. I think everything that matters arrives to your life. What is, what, you know, if, if it is, trust yourself. I, I don't know. This is, uh, this kind of um, advices are always too open. But I think it actually has, it has different meaning in the context of what I've learned about you. Because from the time you were a kid, right, you stepped outside the lines. Your parents, and, and honestly, like I think most people's parents, were within a system where it said, if you are far enough in the system, you have a little bit of money and you play by the rules, you can have a better life than we did. You cannot be poor and struggling to survive. You can be struggling to survive maybe and, and doing something you don't like, but at least you can have stability. You're the, the, your parents are trying to provide you stability, right? And initially you were you didn't want that. You wanted to strike on your own. You wanted to trust yourself and then... Obviously, your, your dad's passing changed how you weighted stability and freedom. And so it seems like you went towards the police route, the bodyguard route, the SWAT team route. That was like a, a weird kind of stability because it was excitement, right? It was, it was adrenaline filled, but it was still stable, right? You were in the confines of government and that provided that stability. But then that initial itch that you had when you were a kid, itch for complete freedom rose again. You went into art school once more. But even this is, I, I think, something that I loved about the story is even in art school, you, you were like, I don't want to do it by your seat. I don't want to do it your way either. Yeah. Right. That was what happened. It's this constant expression of self. And I think that's what art is, right? It's an expression of yourself. But through, you know, just living life, you can be taught to not express yourself to follow the rules and regulations of society. But at each point you question it. You're not having prejudice against other people. You're not saying that their, their life is bad or something, but you're questioning of what, whether that life is good for you and you're being open to it. And I feel like that openness, that rejection of the rules and the trust in yourself and, and what you think self-expression is, is what has led you to this moment to this moment of being able to have a beautiful gallery in San Lucas, have a beautiful family, have this balance of raising your son and spending time in your gallery creating every day. And I think that came really just from trusting yourself and constantly not, and trusting yourself isn't a moment, it's a constant question. It's cyclical, it's, we were talking about death in every moment and I think not dying in every moment, and living every moment is saying, is this, who I am and is this what I want to do? That answer should be yes as much as possible. And I think that's what you taught me today. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, um, yes, I, I'm learning. I'm still learning. I have so many things to, well, to do. I don't know. I, I was telling you, I have so many ideas in the studio this morning. I have so many ideas that I could fulfill like 10, 10 lives painting. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, and my, my head is, is a mess. And I decided to make 
peace with myself because in a certain way you have to f you have to face your contradictions and this is very important too there is not a perfect life every life is perfect because we are the result of a lot of mistakes to arrive here i mean that's a valuable lesson i mean no matter what you do in life you if you have the proper acti attitude you are a successful man but you need the courage to believe in yourself and to go for it you need that that's the only difference between success and the feeling of being unsuccessful Enrique started soul-searching at a fairly young age, finding the courage to defy his parents, being in life-or-death situations with the SWAT team, losing his father prematurely. All these things force him to ask himself the hard questions. Who am I? What do I want to do with my limited time on Earth? And what is success? They're questions that most people don't start grappling with until later in life. But Enrique had a head start. This wisdom didn't save him from hardship or heartbreak, but it did show him that sometimes these struggles were the price you pay for true freedom. And this experience with Enrique was exciting and, I don't know, revealing because I didn't just spend the day with him. I actually saw him again multiple times throughout the rest of my stay in Cabo. I got to visit his gallery and take tequila shots with him and his wife. I got to meet his friends and talk in Spanish. And my Spanish is really bad. I think Enrique showed me you don't have to follow rules or conform to whatever anyone says, but I think that's kind of base. I think he showed me that you can build community anywhere. And I think that's the most amazing thing is if you can build community anywhere and then invite some foreigner like me into that community and say, hey, you're welcome, you're accepted. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez. Tomas Renteria, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Lett, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Alexandra Huntalis Adams. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from... To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>